think there must be something wrong with me, Hipster Henry. The Cinemaholics holiday special is coming and I'm just not happy. I don't feel the way peer pressure Polly told me I'm supposed to feel. I just don't understand Cinemaholics, I guess. I like listening to their weekly movie reviews and wearing Cinemaholics merch and all that. But I'm still not excited. I always end up feeling lonely when listening to their award-winning film commentary. Mr. Millennial, you're the only adult in their late 20s I know who can take a wonderful podcast like Cinemaholics and turn it into a problem. Maybe peer pressure Polly is right. Of all the Mr. Millennials of the world, you're the Mr. Millenniest. Rats. Nobody sent me a Cinemaholics hoodie today. I almost wish there weren't a Cinemaholics holiday special. I know nobody likes my tastes in movies. Why do we even have to have a beloved movie podcast to emphasize it? Thanks for the Cinemaholics hoodie you sent me, peer pressure Polly. I didn't send you a Cinemaholics hoodie, Mr. Millennial. Beyond beef. Hey, know-it-all Noel, I think you have a customer. May I help you, Mr. Millennial? I'm in unreliably sad shape, know-it-all Noel. Wait a minute. Before you begin, I must ask that you pay in advance. One Cinemaholics shot glass, please. All right now, what seems to be your trouble? I'm feeling depressed. The Cinemaholics holiday special is coming up, and I don't have anyone to share it with. Mr. Millennial, you podhead. You're not supposed to celebrate the holidays with the episode of a podcast, no matter how many awards it's won. I'm not? No. You're supposed to get into the holiday spirit by watching an overly produced, critically panned, but casually beloved musical that comes out in December for some reason. The Greatest Showman, Mary Poppins Returns, and of course, Cats. Cats? But I heard on Cinemaholics that Cats was an abomination unto man and a stain upon the glory of God. Look, do you want to celebrate Christmas in the right way or not? And hey, there's even a new big-budget Broadway December musical movie you can watch right now on Netflix. It's called The Prom. Prom? But I'm 27 years old. Beyond beef. This whole thing has been a disaster. I guess I don't know what Cinemaholics is all about. Isn't there anyone who knows what Cinemaholics is all about? Sure, Mr. Millennial. I can tell you what Cinemaholics is all about. Hey, where did Hipster Henry get that stage? And all those lights? And there were in the same Spotify moderators, abiding in the World Wide Web, keeping watch over their royalties by night. And lo, the host of Cinemaholics came upon them, and the egotistical webcam lighting shone round about them, and they were so afraid. And the host of Cinemaholics said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you tidings of great contemporary film analysis which shall be to all podcast listeners with an internet connection. For unto you is born this day, in the IP address of California, a failure, which is the Cinemaholics business and marketing strategy. And this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the holiday special, wrapped in sacrilegious virtue signaling, lying in an Apple Podcasts curated collection for movie fanatics. And suddenly, there was with the host of Cinemaholics a multitude of heavenly co-hosts praising Pod, and saying, Glory to Pod in the highest, 
and on earth peace, good will Ashton's toward men, women, and non-binary persons. Oh, we're so canceled. Beyond belief. Welcome once again to Cinemaholics from the Bay Area. I'm John Agroni, editor and chief of Cinemaholics from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He is a pop culture writer for Cinema Blend, and he also reviews films for Cinemaholics. It's Will Ashton. Hello. From Kansas City, she is the film editor for The Pitch, with bylines at Slash Film, Crooked Marquee, Roger Ebert, and your hearts, it's Abby Olchesi. Hello. You can find more episodes of Cinemaholics, including our full archive on cinemaholics.com including our written reviews and other podcasts. You can write into the show anytime by sending us an email, cinemaholicspodcast at gmail.com. And you can support us directly by becoming one of our monthly patrons on patreon.com slash cinemaholics. We have a lot of off topics to get to this week. Let's start off with Extra Milestone as we normally do. Host Sam Nolan with guest Andrew McMahon talked about two pretty fascinating films, Heat, which is okay, so it's 1995. So, what is that anniversary? 25? Yes, 25th anniversary for Heat. Um, I, I have a feeling you two are uh, fans of that one. I am. And Gimme Shelter, which came out in 1970 and is now celebrating. Uh, man, the, these things are fun for me to practice my math. 50 years, right? Yeah, okay, 50 years at the box office for Gimme Shelter. Uh, I haven't seen Gimme Shelter though. Have either of you? Uh, no, I've seen Heat, though, but yeah, I haven't seen Gimme Shelter. Believe it or not, I have not seen either of these movies, which has gotten me, at least for Heat, it's gotten me a lot of ire among certain friends. <laughs> it's circles, gotten so you a lot of heat. It's gotten me a lot of heat. Um, but I do like Michael Mann, and I, I do want to correct that uh, oversight just as soon as I have the time to do so. So hopefully sometime in the new year, I will be able to give Heat its due. Yeah, I'd, I'd say Heat is probably a Christmas movie, um, but that's just me, I guess. Uh, Okay, we have a new thing uh, that just came out this past week called The Big Stream. This is our YouTube live stream where I basically get on YouTube and have a bunch of technical issues. Isn't that fun? Um, I streamed three times this week and I'm still trying to work out all the kinks, but you can follow us on YouTube, our YouTube channel, Cinemaholics. And on there, I just did like a bunch of segments on all of the Disney announcements, which we're going to get into more detail later. So you can check that out. It's a lot of fun. I basically bring up the announcements and give my own commentary on them. Um, I think it's I think it's worth a watch. Uh, it's definitely a different type of content from the podcast. So hopefully we're going to be able to keep doing those in the future, assuming we work out all the technical stuff, because it really has been like a huge, huge chore. Uh, I, have, I had no idea live streaming was so technically like... Like apparently my sound mixer is like way too powerful for like the streaming technology and I'm just like scrambling to figure out how to solve it. So, oh well. Um, we also are going to be, we said last week we were going to talk about Red, White, and Blue this week, which is uh, one of the latest Small Axe films. And there was another Small Axe uh, film from Steve McQueen that came out this week. We decided we're going to do the whole wrap up for Small Axe next week. So we're pushing it again. Apologies. We just have so many movies to get to. And next week is a bit lighter. So I think we're going to have more time and more room. So yeah, you can keep your ears out for Red, White, and Blue, Alex Weedle. And uh, I think there's another one. I, I don't remember the name of uh, for next week. Uh, okay. Education. That's the fifth one. Is it just education? I believe so. Okay. 
All right, uh, let's get into our listener voicemails. So last week we asked you, are movie theaters dead? And the reason we asked this question is because uh, HBO Max made this big announcement that all of their films are going to be coming out the same day they're coming out to theaters on streaming. So that's 17 films. And so we asked the Cinemaholics community on Swell, the Swell app, uh, what, what do you think? Do you think movie theaters are dead? What do you think of this decision? And we got an interesting range of responses, and we're going to play them right here. I think uh, theaters are going to bounce back big time because I think it's a base need for people to be in community and have that uh, connection in the dark and to feel that sense of uh, collective awe when they watch movies. Um, I have a great hope, not even a hope, a great sense that the theater is going to be a refuge. Um, I know we're going to have to make it into a safe refuge, but um, I think there's going to be a new normal around going to theater, but I think it's going to be a very specific central place where people can go because theaters probably will open up much earlier than let's say concerts where you really can't control seating, but theaters are going to be able to say, okay, we're going to have this six feet thing, but we're going to offer people what they love because historically people have, um, even during times of war, you know, people love movies, lipstick and beer. And it's not that it's, you know, staying home, even though streaming is a new phenomena, People want to be in, in, in connection. Um, we're pack animals in a lot of ways. So I think, um, HBO is doing an amazing job of producing and curating all kinds of, of, uh, work, but, um, it's playing to people's base needs right now, but it's not going to replace our base needs in the future. That's my thought. I base my opinion on two places I've been. I was lucky to be there. One was a standard cinema in Kaiserslautern, was it? In Germany, uh, Kaiserslautern, Germany, or uh, Ramstein, Miesenbach, Germany. It was a lovely cinema, Kino is what they're called. And it had seats, comfortable seats. Every seat had a reading lamp and a small table. You could also buy beer and wine in the lobby and use it on your table. It's those kind of plush settings that not every cinema has, but there is a bit of a feeding frenzy or a communal activity around enjoying the effects on booming speakers and large screens and shrieking in delight, gasping in terror. It's a certain crowd dynamic I think is essential to humanity. I also, once a year, go to uh, a castle, Ash Ashford Castle. It has a cinema, 35 seats, plush red velour, free sweets. So you had the candy machine on the left, popcorn machine on the right, and your bar is behind you. <laughs> once again, a lovely dynamic. It's communal. You see and hear together and respond with your clapping or shouting or sighing it's something that just doesn't happen through max for me question though don't you think 
I do not agree with some of the things that have been said in this thread about how movie theaters will bounce back. I think that the movie theaters that I grew up with are not going to be back for quite some time. Uh, you know, you have to include here that the studios have pretty detailed relationships with movie theaters on how they can release films, how much money is made from releasing films. And at this point, I don't see any way that a lot of mom and pop, uh, theaters are able to stay open when you have large chains that are are struggling right now to figure out what to do i think that this is really really going to hurt movie going for a long time now i think that the decision in and of itself is so so stupid um maybe if i own some some shares of Warner Brothers stock, I'd feel a little bit differently. But given how pretty much every major actor, their agents and directors have all been responding to this, uh, it's really not a good sign. And when you have someone like Dennis Villanueva coming out and saying the things he did just yesterday, I think it was about Warner Brothers, it should probably give you cause for concern. I mean, he's one of the greatest directors uh, right now, and he's responsible for Dune. And yeah, I mean, the whole situation is such a mess. Um, one I'm not too surprised by. I think that usually people are going to go wherever they think they can make the most money. But it's just a shame that, you know, there hasn't even been a single year of this pandemic that has uh, gone by. And Warner Brothers is basically fully abandoning a system that was in place for like decades and decades and decades. Uh, it's pretty sad. All right. So thank you, everybody who left a voicemail for us on Swell. Um, you can tell there too, it's like when you leave a voicemail on Swell, you can listen to the previous ones. So it was kind of interesting because we heard like responses to the two, the first two. So the first two came from username Giving Voice, who also goes by Deborah, and uh, username Top Gold, who has done a voicemail for us before. And then the last person you heard was username Taylor. Thank you again. Um, if you want to leave voicemails, you can do so on the Swell app. We have an account on there. Follow us and you'll be readily informed when we have a new question out uh, for you to respond to. So let's talk about it. So Abby, we had two opinions that were very much of like, this isn't a huge deal necessarily. Theaters are going to bounce back. We had one person who was like, I'm definitely not as optimistic. Uh, where, where do you stand on this whole thing on the HBO Max decision, how they handled it and cinema itself? Are we going to have to change the name of this podcast? Oh boy. Uh, yeah. Streamaholics possibly. Um, yeah, I, I'm kind of of two minds about this. Uh, I'm, I'm sort of somewhere in the middle. Uh, I, I want to be optimistic and I appreciate not being the only optimist about the future of theaters. I do think that once, uh, the, once the pandemic kind of settles down, like once we're able to actually go out in public again, I feel like people aren't going to want to watch every single thing on their couch in their homes like they have been for the last several months. I feel like the novelty of being out and being able to go back to the theaters, especially, I think, especially mom and pop theaters, like uh, I can't wait to go back to the Screenland Armor because like I know the folks who work there and I want to support them and I like the setting of that theater and I like like the concessions that I'm able to get there. Like that's an experience that I'm eager to have again and I know I'm not alone in that. Um, I'm, I'm probably less excited to go to like my neighborhood AMC, um, but I, I would happily go there too. Um, so I, yeah, as, as somebody who's excited to go back to the theater, I, I feel like there are enough people who feel the same way that we can potentially bounce back. I think it's going to take a while. Um, 
I also feel like this is kind of a dangerous precedent. And I know we're going to talk a little bit more about kind of corporate ownership stuff when we discuss uh, the Disney news uh, here pretty soon. But um, I know that just based on kind of the discourse that's emerged in the last week or so that a lot of people who actually make the content that these studios put out, you know, the, the art, the movies, um, are really not happy about the distribution system. I hope that's enough to kind of overpower the corporate sentiment as well. Um, but I also know that that corporate sentiment is not necessarily based in a uh, creative direction. A lot of it is based on the idea of treating movies as branded content. And again, I'll talk about more of that when we get to Disney, because I have thoughts on that too. Um, so I feel like there's there's a pretty deep divide here between uh, creatives and between the people who actually give them the money to make those projects and caught in the middle are the consumers who I, I would like to think can prove the corporate folks wrong. I know that's happened a lot in the past. Um, Hollywood executives aren't necessarily the best at uh, understanding con uh, consumer patterns as much as they would like to think that they are. Um, but yeah, I could see it going either way. I hope that we are smart enough and social enough that we can actually, you know, prove them wrong. Yeah, very interesting take. Now, Will, you know, I know very few people who are as fully invested in the like theatrical model as you are. So uh, I, I kind of have an idea of like where you stand on this. But if you could contextualize it for the listeners, especially those who aren't as familiar with your current stance on what needs to happen for theaters to stay viable and, you know, what the future kind of looks like. Right. I mean, I don't want to say anything that will like come back to haunt me or anything that would seem too reactionary because I do think ultimately the decisions made by um, AT&T and HBO Max and Warner Brothers feels pretty reactionary to me as far as like I, I, I didn't really see it as like we got to kill a theater. So and so it just felt like they needed to boost up their fourth quarter uh, numbers and they're just like they need something to make their stockholders feel confident about 2021, especially in such an uncertain economy so i can understand the decision there but and I, I have to assume that they base that decision off of knowing that disney was going to have this uh investor day coming up and they kind of wanted to jump the gun a little bit and make something exciting on their terms but yeah i mean i, I guess similar to where abby is it just seems like it's a decision that's going to have to rely on the viewers or movie audiences because i do agree that i think especially um people now i, I think they're just tired of being at home I, I have to imagine if they're similar to me that they don't want to just be watching movies on their laptops all the time like there is a communal experience to the movie theater that you can't really replicate similar to concerts um that you know you can always listen to music wherever you go but you know you don't you don't you can't replicate that concert going experience and you know same with movies like you just can't replicate that unless you have like a personal theater or something but now is that going to mean that people are going to be going to movies once a week or is it going to be more of a kind of like special to do thing i don't exactly know that's going to be the question and i would hope that you know people keep going back to theaters and they make it something that you do once uh every so often at least um but you know at this point it is a decision that has to come from the movie going audiences and i know for me at least i would definitely be uh, going back to theaters as often as readily as possible once it's safe and easy to do so. But I can't speak for anyone else. And uh, I don't want to assume everyone is going to be treating this exactly as I would just because I'm a big movie fan. But um, I'm hopeful, but not like cloudy, I guess, about it. I, I would hope for the best. And I, I do think people, at least initially, are going to be going back to theaters. But at this point, you know, it's kind of hard to say for certain. But uh, hope for the best, expect for the worst is, I guess, my stance at this point. 
that's my stance, except I am like not really like I'm losing all hope. <laughs> I, I think I'm, I might be the most cynical. I, I genuinely believe that the, the movie theaters as we know it is definitely dead. And I, I don't think we're ever going to go back to any sort of like, I don't think it's ever going to be like it was. I just don't. I think that there is going to be an initial period where people go back to theaters because they're curious again. But then I think that's going to wear off super fast because I think the convenience of streaming is currently training people to expect content on demand as soon as it's available. And I don't, I don't think people are going to pony up and show up to theaters on mass like they used to. I think those days are just kind of over. Um, I think that there will still be like event movies. I think there will be like Disney theaters and like Marvel movies will come to theaters and that will be the time people go to theaters. I think they'll still use movie theaters as places to go on dates. But I think it's, I think actually like comparing it to concerts is almost a little apt. I think they're going to be fewer, but I think in the sense that like people don't go to concerts that often. Unless you're like a huge like well, that's music what I was lover, trying to say, yeah, right? basically that's the comparison I was trying to make, yeah. I I think that's a fair comparison because I think like movie tickets are going to be super expensive, and I think that it's just going to become it's going to go from being like an enterprise to being a novelty, which I know we've talked about before. I, you know, I, I we've compared it to like bowling alleys and skating rinks, and it's just going to be one of those things that like your town might have but it's not going to be like the big box office. Like this is the primary engine for how movies make money sort of thing anymore. And that could be in some ways, there could be silver linings to that. It's not necessarily like a terrible thing, but it does mean that for those of us who live in areas that will probably always have a strong film scene, like the three of us, you know, knock on wood, will probably have good theaters to go to for a long time. But I, I really pain for like the people who won't, who will grow up, and, you know, the next generation, especially who just even if there is a theater around, it's not going to be part of like American social life to the point where they prefer it. And it's just going to slowly die. And I think that there are going to be people who would love it, who will never who would never even know like the joys <laughs> that we've gone through, uh, you know, as a as a cinemaholics community. So that's the kind of thing that gets me a little you know rattled because I think the experience of going to the theater, especially like a good theater, you know, I, I miss like more than anything, like driving to the theater, you know, like the anticipation, uh, you know, watching the trailers and then, you know, having the snacks and everything. And then having that time driving home where you can just sit and process like all that stuff. I feel like we're kind of losing because now I just watch things and I immediately move on to something else. And there's just, I don't know, there, there's something around the pacing of like cinematic content uh, in this like stream only sort of environment that is definitely is more limiting than I think uh, for what you get in terms of convenience, which is really nice, obviously, and what you get in terms of like the freedom of you don't have to plan your day around going to a movie theater. Some of that specialness is getting lost as well, which, you know, it's a, a first world problem in a lot of ways. We have to be clear, but uh, first, you know, for cinemaholics, we have to have like a long conversation, I guess, about like, what is cinema? Is it really like the place or is cinema cinema like the idea of like film itself and the discourse around it so um i'm, I'm pr not presenting that as a rhetorical that's a rhetorical question <laughs> so have you will you don't have to chime in uh right now on that unless you want to i mean i might i mean i i do think you are on the ball and i think that there is truth to that but i guess 
because it's easy to be cynical about these things, I understand that position. But to be a little bit more optimistic, I, I tend to to go back to music analogy. I, I look at something like vinyl, which was like, you know, the, the main thing. And then it stopped being the thing when like CDs and like electronic music or uh, devices of that sort, like CDs and whatnot came around. But then now vinyl comes back around because people see it as like the optimal way to listen to music. And I, I could see something like that happening with theaters. I don't know if that's going to be the case or not because theaters are yeah. such a bigger production More expensive than something to like vinyl. But, and uh, and, yeah. Sure. But um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, it, at the same time, like I said, it, it's such a um, impossible question to answer with any certainty at this point because it's something we're, we're entering a new normal right now. We just don't know what the future is going to be. But I mean, what you're suggesting is a safe bet and it would be very sad if that's the case. But since the question is, are movie theaters dead? Uh, I, I I do think we are somewhat being a little bit hopeful and saying like they're not going to be gone forever. Like there is at least going to be some hopefully some theaters around, even if it is a kind of more niche thing. But yeah, the idea of movie theaters not being what they once were is certainly a sad thought. Maybe we just have to hope for like a Ready Player One situation where we can just go into like a virtual reality theater, you know, that doesn't cost brick and mortar money to like create. Who knows? I mean, don't those technically exist? Isn't is that it? a thing? that that happened at one point yeah i believe that that was a thing at least at one point in in uh in vr well, availability go. so who knows i hope not but who knows That'd be i fun. mean if you could get all of the tenets of like what makes a movie theater a movie theater into a virtual thing sure let's do it replicate the experience of going to a matinee by yourself <laughs> there's one other guy yeah. in the theater he kind of smells a little weird but you just don't you keep a distance and you know, like you see the trailers you've seen 15 times and yeah, I can yeah, see that. Yeah, That'd be that's fun. all we ask. All right. Well, uh, <laughs> we have another voicemail question for next week to pose to you now. Which Disney announcements are you most excited about? Uh, we mentioned this earlier in the show. Disney announced like 52 things, a ton of new like Star Wars movies and shows, Pixar, Disney animation. The main theme of their investor day, which was Thursday, was uh, Disney Plus, Disney Plus, Disney Plus. <laughs> you know, they had some announcements around like Hulu and Star, their new international version of Hulu. Uh, you know, just some little like, oh yeah, this is how we're going to handle 20th Century, like the formerly Fox content. It's going to be on this stuff. And then Disney Plus is going to have like this cavalcade of quote, new and original content. We did get some announcements that were like original projects. Uh, most of them were in like Disney animation and Pixar realm which I think a lot of those are really exciting. Um, like there was like a Disney animation movie called Encanto, which looks really fun. And then we got some more info on like Ryan the Last Dragon, Luca, Turning Red, these original Pixar movies. But I think there is also this sort of feeling that like Disney is kind of doing what they did like in the early 2000s, late 90s, where it's just nothing but direct to DVD Disney Channel shows based on like the most tangential things around like existing disney ip for example like they have this thing coming out like a new baymax series there's going to be a zootopia series a moana series uh, even doug from up is getting like a series there's like a groot short series thing it, it's a lot um and uh abby will i know we will probably talk about this a little bit more next week but do you want to anything you want to say now to get off your chest about this announcement now that we're immediately reacting to it oh boy i do i really do um so this kind of bounces off a little bit of this and the HBO Warner Max, uh, HBO Max Warner uh, announcement kind of are are very tied together for me and my my feelings. Um, 
So a few weeks ago, actually more like about a month and a half ago, it, I lose sense of time in quarantine, but it was it was a while ago. Uh, I attended a uh, marketing conference online for my day job, which is in marketing. And one of the keynote speeches or one of the keynote interactions was an interview between Van Jones and Bob Iger, who was the outgoing CEO of, of Disney. And I remember Iger uh, referring to Star Wars and Marvel and probably even Pixar too, as branded content, which is a phrase I will never, ever, ever forget Oof. in my life. Um, and I know that shouldn't be, yeah, that shouldn't be surprising, right? Because like, I mean, technically he's not wrong, um, but it is also art. And so I feel like that just revealed a lot to me about where his priorities and where a lot of corporate Hollywood's priorities lie at this point. I mean, let's also remember that uh, the HBO and Warner are owned by AT&T now, which is a tech company and probably has more of a, a tech and corporate-minded side of things than any kind of more established Hollywood person had they been in charge of a studio. Like, that's a different mindset. So um, I think what we're getting is just, it's a cavalcade of branded content. It's not necessarily concerned with quality, although they have hired some pretty great people to make some of those films, and a lot of people of color, which is admirable and awesome. But the mindset behind it, I think, is just like what's going to make people watch, what's going to drive subscriptions, what's going to get us money. And so I think initially we're getting some stuff that is of interesting quality. But I mean, at some point that's going to peter out. And I feel like what we're going to get more and more over time is just a decline in quality because it's got, you know, it's got name recognition attached. And so that is sort of my feeling on it. Like I am excited for some of it. I'm very happy that Nia DaCosta is getting a chance to make another, you know, big movie. I would love to be able to see her make more movies that are not based on an existing IP. Um, so that's 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 kind of where I'm at. There's some good in there, but I'm really kind of raising my yeah, eyebrow I, I at think it. With Disney, you have to remember that they're so different from AT&T in terms of how they want to make all of the money. Right. Because with AT&T, their whole business model, they don't care if they lose a ton of money on HBO max and on like all the box office that they're expending this year, because at the end of the day, AT&T is like you said, a tech company. And for them, this is all about this like services. This is all about selling cell phones and subscription plans and things that benefit where they really get their money, which is the control of data. And so that's that's why we're even seeing this move at all, and it's so different from Disney, which it, their their business model relies solely, not solely, but mostly on their parks and how their content connects and ties together and gets people excited to go to Walt Disney World and spend their entire savings. So there, that's why both of these things kind of can exist and have different business models and both still be successful because they sort of demand a different chunk of your wallet, but. I think we have to acknowledge there that, yeah, no, they're not making art for art's sake. Nobody is. Uh, we just sort of have to hope that the scraps of what they produce create that, you know, that that content that we actually enjoy and can talk about. Uh, before we move on, Will, did you want to add anything? Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, so the guy that owns or is operating Disney now, isn't he the guy that once ran the parks? Yeah, Bob. Uh, K I know people call him Bob Paycheck, uh, but it's like K-Check yeah. or K-Peck or something like that. Yeah. So I don't the second Bob. Yeah, I don't think that's incidental <laughs> based on what you're yeah. basically describing. Um, yeah, I mean, for me, though, I, I do wonder with cinema, uh, with um, uh, Disney Plus and like HBO Max and stuff, if they're going to learn the lesson that Netflix learned the hard way, which is that basically streaming has a ceiling. 
and let like you can produce so much content, but it's like if, if you can't reach more and more subscribers after like a certain year point, uh, like is that going to be for not or is that going to like kind of blow up in their face? I don't know if that's going to be the case for Disney because there are so many people that love the brand and so many people who are continuing to subscribe. But I, I do wonder with that news and with um all these announcements, that's going to be the case. Um, and I, I do think that's something that gives me hope about theaters that like there isn't that same limitation. But at the same time, like I was saying before, I, I have to wonder if people are going to be showing up, but they're conditioned, as you were suggesting, to go just to wa- or expect everything to streaming. But um, yeah, I mean, as far as the announcements themselves, I mean, mostly I, it left me more cynical <laughs> than the HBO Max AT&T thing, just because it just it just struck me as so much like we want to make brands. We want to establish IP stuff. Here's just things you recognize. And it's more of it. Even if you don't want it, it's just more of that. And um, yeah, I mean, for me, it's like, yeah, I mean, like, I don't care. Like, I, I'm probably not going to watch most of the Star Wars shows and like the Marvel things just because like I don't need to and I don't want to. But it does make me cynical that that is their interest at this point, as opposed to like making, like Abby said, like art as opposed to branding. But I don't know. That's that's what Cinemaholics is for. We're going to help narrow things down for people. Um, hopefully we'll be able to engage with this content as much as we can so that you don't have to if you don't feel like you or if you're worried about missing out, we'll do our best. Uh, I think shows like ours are hopefully going to be a resource for people to, you know, get a sense of what's new without doing a ton of like legwork. But uh, who knows? Who knows that that'll be the future for us? And I'll say, you know, this is a great segue into our first review, which is of the prom. And the reason is because, like, well, okay, how does Netflix make money? Like we'll say, like they they are starting to really plateau in terms of like adding new subscribers. It's like everybody just has Netflix at this point, or they're sharing a Netflix account. How else can they squeeze money? And uh, one of the one of the things that you know people have been talking about this past year has been more of like the the gro- the rise of product placement. Uh, and Netflix uh, to a greater degree than I think we've seen um, before. And uh, product placement in the prom in particular is pretty egregious. And so uh, let's let's talk about the prom. You got the steps. You got the notes. But where's the zazz, baby? What is going on? Who are you people? Oh, my God, that's... Where is my suite? We don't have a suite. Now, do you have a suite? We have come to this community on behalf of a young girl. I just want to go to prom like any other kid. All opposed. Prom, as I mentioned, is a new Netflix film. It is based on a Broadway musical. Uh, this one is directed, though, by Ryan Murphy. Uh, he has been really like close with Netflix lately. He's made things for them like Hollywood and The Politician. I believe this is like the first film in that deal that they're doing, uh, if I'm not mistaken. This new film, uh, it, it's definitely the big budget December musical, right? We get these like every year. Uh, last year was Cats, and then we had like Greatest Showman and all that. And yeah, these these 
these movies are either like really successful or like they're cats and like people talk about them, but they just sort of like, they, they don't make money. And uh, the prom is an interesting one because it's premiering here on Netflix. It did have a limited release, uh, I think like a week ago. Uh, it made like, I think around like a hundred, two hundred thousand $200,000 at the box office because COVID. That said, I'm not sure if they would have done any sort of like bigger release or something for this. I think, you know, this was always in the cards as soon as Netflix uh, got the ball uh, rolling on this. Um, but that said, this movie uh, is about a young girl in Indiana who wants to go to prom, but she wants to go as herself. She wants to go uh, with her lesbian girlfriend. And the problem is that their community in Indiana is like an enclave of bigotry and the PTA of their school won't allow the kids to go to a prom where somebody can go with someone of the same sex. And in response, a group of Broadway performers get together because there's, they're sort of on the outs. Uh, the critics are panning them as narcissists. So they decide, well, we have to look like we're not narcissists. So we should do this PR thing. We're going to band together and uh, help this young girl out and make her prom the best prom ever, right? And of course, they're going to learn some lessons along the way and all that. This is a pretty star-studded cast. We have Meryl Streep as the like most famous of the Broadway performers. We have James Corden uh, doing what I guess is like the homosexual version of blackface. Uh, we have Nicole Kidman who wears a hat, and uh, we have um, Andrew Rannells, who I I forgot was in this, but I always appreciate seeing him. We just saw him in Boys in the Band. Uh, as he kind of rounds out the Broadway crew. We also have Keegan Michael Key as the principal of the school, who is a he is a huge fan of Dee Dee Allen, the Meryl Streep character, but he happens to be straight, so love interest, and uh, but a bunch of other people. We have Carrie Washington as the head of the PTA who. Uh, doesn't know that her daughter, who uh, I forget the name of the uh, that character or the, the name of the uh, the actress of that character. I think it's um, Ariana Debose. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, because the other girl, the lesbian uh, Emma, is played by Joellen Pellman, and uh, yeah, that's kind of the cast. I don't want to. There's one more person, but I want to see who it is because it's kind of for me it was a fun surprise when she showed up in this movie. But uh, that's it. This is a catchy musical. It is very flamboyant and in your face. And uh, there's it has a lot of problems. I'm going to say this at the outset, though. Will, Abby, um, I'm going to give you a chance to tell me all the reasons why I guess you probably don't like this, but I liked this. So I'm just going to get that out of the way. But we'll start with you, Abby. What did you think of Prom? I don't I mean, I don't disrespect you for liking it, John. I think there's there are some things that are likable in this movie. Um, most of what I found disappointing about it was kind of it's I feel like a lack of staginess. Um, so things that I really enjoy about those those big budget December um, musical adaptations or like musical movies in the case of Greatest Showman. Um, is is that they feel kind of grand and big and like even cats as like messed up as it was did have a sense of like staginess right like you were you felt like you were watching a show um and i i kind of wanted more of that from from the prom um i wanted to feel like i was watching a musical instead of an episode of glee and i felt like that was a lot of what i was getting and it felt it felt kind of flat for me a lot of the time well okay but what if you wanted both the glee episode and the musical Maybe oh, but that's... i don't though <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing. Um, Fair enough. Sorry. I think also uh, I 
I'm I'm a big fan of uh, of Bob Martin, who co-wrote the uh, the musical, like the Broadway musical, and also the the screenplay for the Prom. Uh, he's also one of the people who put together the Drowsy Chaperone, which is one of my favorite modern musicals of the last few years. And I I really enjoy that kind of sense of meta self awareness, which you can tell I think in certain scenes and like the script and in the music that that is there. But it feels like for whatever reason they just don't address it to the extent that they need to. Like it's just kind of one off lines from uh, from Rannells who who gets it. I think he kind of gives the the performance that that you would want from from a role like he has um and sometimes from from kidman and sometimes from keegan michael key i feel like of the performers the three of them understand the most what movie they're in um but i think when it comes to especially meryl streep actually it feels sort of like sleepwalking like she's just sort of throwing together a diva performance and putting it out there and i think also in corden's case too i think it's they're they're taking it I mean, I don't want to say that they're taking it way too seriously because there are some serious themes in in the musical, but I feel like there's sort of a lack of uh, of self-deprecation and self-awareness there that I, I know would exist in a stage version because there's no way that it couldn't. Um, so that was mostly what I found disappointing about it. I feel like the writing is there. You can tell there's just sort of this this frustrating remove that you can tell what would make it work really well on stage. And it's just not there, I think, in the filmed version. To, to jump on that point of like the lack, I think it's a lack of nuance generally with those characters. But I think even with that lack of nuance, I could not disagree more about Meryl Streep in this. I, I think she brings it. Um, I, I don't necessarily think for James Corden, like, okay, it's it's fine for a straight person to play a gay, play a gay character. But in this context, like, especially for this kind of character, I just don't think Corden is like a good enough actor to pull this off because it just comes across as play acting. It's not, I don't know if you're going to do something like this, it, it needs a little bit more depth and he doesn't have it. But I, I have to differ that I do think Meryl Streep is really like shining in this, uh, even though I, it's weird because I disagree then also on Kidman, who I think is like, what is she doing here? Because she's like, a way bigger star. I feel like they should have brought somebody in the same level of like Andrew Reynolds for her character, you know, like a more of a relatively unknown, like maybe you recognize them for this smaller part, but I don't know. Uh, Will Ashen, let's go to you. Well, you see, John, Nicole Kidman, she wears a hat and uh, she, she, she's got Zazz. (laughs) She's there too. Yeah. She's got Zazz. She wears a hat. She's, I guess, yeah, she does, what, she does a great job with what she's given because it's Nicole Kidman, but it's just it's jarring to see her in this, honestly, in this small of a part. Right. Yeah, no, that's why I felt, too, because I was like, you know, like when I saw Nicole Kidman, I was like, oh, wow, you know, Nicole Kidman, she, I guess this is going to be a big character. And it's just like, well, not really. Um, but yeah, I, I wasn't quite sure why they cast her in that part. But um, yeah, I guess I'm ultimately somewhere in between where Abby is, because um. I, with Ryan Murphy, I haven't seen everything he's done. Uh, I've seen a decent bit of his films, but um, just in general, like his content, um, I, I tend to be kind of 50 50. Like some of it I like and enjoy, like the people versus OJ Simpson and a few others and some other stuff that I've seen from him. I just it doesn't quite work for me. Uh, like, for instance, like, I don't know I, I what I've seen from American Horror Story. I've, I've gone really back and forth on it. It, it just seems like it's kind of like a hodgepodge of uh, quality and content. But um, as far as this movie, I guess uh, that kind of informs where I stand in that, like, I, I think it's at once kind of amusing and silly and also kind of garish and, and superficial. 
And that like, I, I think he is competent enough now as a filmmaker and has enough experience to where he can make a really polished and like smooth production. And I think he knows what he's trying to do as a director, but it all just kind of feels like pop and circumstance to me. And that like, I, I, it's very clear what he wants to say from this. Like he gets it out and says it very bluntly, but the execution of it just kind of is what it is. Like it just says what it wants to say. It doesn't really have a lot of depth or nuance to it. It's just a kind of mainstream, uh, superficial version, like I said, of camp. But um, the performances themselves, I guess I'm somewhere in between. Where I mainly disagree is I'm similar to John. I thought Meryl Streep was actually quite solid in this. And I do agree that her character is kind of played up to be um, a bit like, uh, I don't know, uh, a bit lacking. But um, I I do think, uh, particularly as a singer, I think this is probably some of her strongest musical work. Um, I I don't know if she sounded better than this than anything I can better think than of, Mama uh, Mia at least in terms of her I musical. Think. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean she's come a long way, especially from the first Mama Mia movie. But um, uh, yeah, I mean I, I you can tell I think in that respect that she's growing and excelling. But yeah, I mean I don't think this is like her like Oscar winning or Oscar worthy work. But I do think she is quite solid in this. But I do have to agree that James Corden <laughs> is quite easily probably the weakest thing and the worst thing about it, and it indul- indulges probably. Ryan Murphy's worst tendencies as a as a director, mainly because, like you're saying, John, like we watched um, yeah. Paul Bettany not too long ago in Uncle Frank. And, you know, he's a straight actor, but, you know, he brought so much, you know, empathy and nuance to that character, even though that movie wasn't particularly great. I, I, I didn't feel like that was, you know, that's a good showcase of where like a straight actor, if they approach it sensitively and with care and respect. I think you can do something like this well. And clearly James Corden is just kind of playing it for show and it just feels like a fairly empty and offensive cynical uh, performance because of that. But um, the other, the, the rest of the cast, I do agree. Andrew Reynolds, probably one of the standouts here. I think King Michael Key brings a sincerity to his performance that is endearing overall. And um, I do, I have to agree with Ari on uh, Debose. I think she was quite solid in this, but um, I, I, I forget the name of the lead actress, but like, I think she does a fine job, but I just feel like there's not a lot to her character as she's written here. Maybe yeah. it's, her name is Emma in the movie Joellen Pellman. Yeah. I mean, I think maybe in the stage production, there's a little bit more uh, layer. There may be more layers to that character. But as she's presented in Ryan Murphy's film, it just seems like Ryan Murphy could care less <laughs> about the lead character. He's like kind of more interested in the kind of uh, pop of the actors and kind of like playing up the lead uh, celebrity characters and and that's a shame because i feel like that undermines the emotional warmth of the uh finale even though it does have this kind of like uh uh big extravagant uh showcase but um in the end yeah i'm not too negative on this it's a little better than i anticipated it being but i do find myself kind of feeling like it's a a bit of an empty spectacle overall i i do want to chime in about the emma character i i do think that yeah her character is strange because it's such a blank slate and that's kind of a missed opportunity, I think, because, yeah, we don't really get to know her. We don't really get a lot of like, I don't know, context for like what her experience is. It's a lot of exposition. It's a lot of like her sort of like saying her feelings and it's not a bad performance whatsoever. I just think, OK, all all of the problems with this movie totally exist. They're all valid. I think there are elements of this that are very distracting. But I think I I still liked this because it was just it has this sort of like unabashed Ryan Murphy energy that I just think carries things through. And I think with Joellen uh, Joellen Pellman, I think her charisma saves that like character from being a total disaster. And I think I really genuinely think it's the performance that saves it. And I think that 
what makes the whole thing in general work, even though it shouldn't, uh, in my view, is just the commitment from everybody. Like, I don't think anybody here is phoning it in. I, not even James Corden. I, I just think everyone's giving it their all and not everybody is equally like good at like really selling this very kind of bizarre and dated story, uh, which, you know, I think the themes and the messages of the story are really solid and, and worth, it's a great story worth telling. But the mechanics of the story and really just like the setup itself is just very bizarre. And maybe maybe it's because we're not, Indiana, we're not in Indiana, I guess. Like to me, this whole thing of like these like high school characters who like only need like a song number to change their entire worldview, like it's just very cookie cutter. And it, it falls into, I think, the chief criticism I tend to have with Ryan Murphy is that his wish fulfillment gets in his own way. And when he has an opportunity to tell a more complicated and a more realistic uh, story or have a third act, that kind of leans more into what people really are going through. He opts for like fantasy land where all, you know, everything's going to be solved and everything's going to be fine because we did our best and he does it a lot. And I think it's getting a little bit, I know that he's adapting here, so we have to give a little bit of credit, but I think that, you know, adapting this sort of thing does require a little bit more of like a deft hand to guide like the the tendency he tends to have if that makes any sense because i'm trying not to spoil like what exactly happens but yeah it just it just does not feel like the emotional stakes are really there which pre pre it prevents this from being like for me like an easy recommend i think that a lot of people watch it and be like i don't care for me i cared because i genuinely really liked the music in this and i thought it was really catchy and i thought the stage production of it is good and the budget is well placed and the song numbers themselves are, are really fun to watch. Like they would be a Broadway place. So I, I just ended up liking this. So um, I guess that's my final thought on it. I'll, I kind of leave it at that. Uh, I am a, 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 a B minus on the prom. Uh, Abby or Chessie, what about you? Where did, where did you land on the prom? Um, that's a, that's a good question. I'm, I'm kind of wavering between a C plus and a B minus myself. Um, probably more on the B minus end of things. Like there, there's, there are things that I enjoy about it. Um, I, I don't know that it, I think your, your, your point about Ryan Murphy being kind of wish fulfillmenty in this is, is spot on. There's some stuff that's a little too neat and, uh, really, I think feels like not, not only does it not reflect reality, I feel like it is kind of dismissive of what that reality actually looks like, uh, for people who have actually gone through, um, difficult coming out stories. I feel like maybe it could potentially, if you're if you interpret it in a certain way, I feel like it could potentially undermine the importance of that experience. Um, but on the other hand, I think it could also kind of lift up through representation, just the the fact that everybody deserves to have some kind of delightful romance and happy ending in their life, no matter what their, their uh, gender or sexual affiliation may be. Um, and I think that's important too. Um, I think some of the musical numbers are fun, um, but they don't quite feel they don't they don't quite have the sense that I want them to have. I think the emotional stakes issue is definitely a problem, too. Um, but I mean, it's still pleasant enough. I think there are some good performances in it. Um, you may feel differently about Meryl Streep's performance than I do. Um, there is one number where I noticed it felt like uh, Ryan Murphy and Matthew Liebetique refused to shoot her from anywhere but the waist up, which I thought was very confusing and made me wonder if she didn't know the choreography for this particular scene or just wasn't able to pull it off. It was very weird. Um, but I mean, I'm not going to hate on Meryl too much because when we talk about Let Them All Talk, I'm going to have a lot of nice things to say. 
Um, but yeah, I think there's, it's still enjoyable, even though I think there are some things that keep it from being really as good as it should be. So yeah, I'm a, I think I'm closer to a B minus on this one. So it sounds like you're like a low B minus. I'm actually, I'm a high B minus, almost a B. Uh, Will Ashton, I, I'm, I'm shocked you're going to give this one a B plus, but you know, it's, that is the magic of prom, I guess. I guess so. I think you need a new bit at this point. You keep doing that. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but I, I'm not going to tell you what to do, John. But um, yeah, I, I guess I didn't anticipate this going in, but I guess I'm the most negative only in the sense that um, for me, ultimately, I just don't think the movie quite works on the whole, but I don't think it's necessarily like a bad or terrible film. Like I think some critics are really lashing onto this and because of uh, their disdain for Ryan Murphy and his Murphyisms. But um, for me, I think like, all things considered, like it, it does fall in line with more or less where I stand on a lot of his work, which is that I think it's well produced. Like, I think he knows what he's doing at this point. Like, I think he can do he can put a, you know, polished, you know, uh, spectacle on at this point and, and accomplish that, especially through Netflix and their um, steady stream of budget. But um, ultimately, I just kind of found it to be a fleeting experience. And uh, I, I just don't think it really stuck the landing in a way that that made it super resonant or powerful because a lot of the emotional moments felt undermined by him not fully really developing them in a believable or emotionally earnest way uh and i think that's that's pretty crucial beyond the uh musical aspects and the performances which like i said before uh the performances i, I think are also kind of 50 50 but i do agree with you john i think by and large music is fine like i, I don't think it's a bad soundtrack or anything um, I, I would be curious after seeing this movie to see the stage production because I have heard it's a little bit more uh, complex and nuanced in its themes as well as a little bit more willing to be kind of edgy and uh, a little bit more biting. It seems like they kind of sanded off a lot of the edges with this thing. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm a pretty high C plus on this. I don't think it's like I said, a terrible or like horrible film or anything like that. Um, I do think it, it in t- traditional uh, Ryan Murphy fashion, I think it makes a couple of weird choices. For instance, I, I there's a, several things without giving away in James Corden's solo number where I'm just like, <laughs> I, I'm very curious how they laid this out or if anyone was just like, oh, do you, you really want to go through with it this way? <laughs> but um, yeah, I digress. I, um, but um, yeah, it, it's a fine film. I, I, I think most people are going to get something out of it. And it's pleasant, sweet enough where I, I don't think it's going to be uh, quite as offensive as uh, some people make it seem. But at the same time, uh, I, I can't say I really got a whole lot out of it beyond, uh, like I said, fleeting enjoyment. So uh, a pretty high, but uh, not ultimately winning C plus for me. It sounds to me like the three of us need to find somebody who's not allowed to like watch movies at a prom. I don't know. I don't, I'm trying to do something here and it's not working. Uh, the prom is uh, out right now on Netflix. It is a bit long, 131 minutes to a bit over two hours. Uh, so it is it is a bit of a time commitment. I was not expecting that. There were times where I was like, this is still going. Um, but that said, uh, I definitely enjoyed it the most here. And uh, I, I, I really don't know how people are. I think people are going to know pretty early on and if they like it or not. So uh, my advice is this, if you do check out the prom cause you're curious and you're not into it within like the first 15 minutes, that's probably a sign that you're not going to be into it the rest of the movie either. So you, you might be safe to go ahead and switch to something else, which is what we're going to do now. Our next film is I'm your woman, which is a new neo-noir crime drama uh, directed by Julia Hart. Uh, we last saw a film from her earlier this year with Stargirl, which went straight to Disney+. Will Ashton reviewed that film for us. 
And before that, she also directed Fast Color, which was kind of like an indie sort of like superpower movie uh, that came out last spring. And uh, it was a film that I, I enjoyed uh, to some extent. Didn't love it, but I will say off the bat that I really do like this film a lot. Um, so this one, um, she co-wrote with Jordan Horowitz. Uh, you might recognize that name. I brought him up uh, quite a few times. Um, he produced uh, La La Land, for example. And this film stars Rachel Brosnahan and Irinzi Kane, Marsha Stephanie Blake, Bill Heck, Frankie Faison, and a few others. And like I said before, it is like a neo-noir. It takes place in Abby. Why don't you tell us uh, what, what is this? What is I Am Your Woman about? And what did you think of the film? Yeah. So uh, I'm Your Woman stars uh, Rachel Brosnahan, who plays Jean. She is the wife of Eddie, who's played by Bill Heck, who I think you might remember from um, from the Coen Brothers Ballad of Buster Scruggs. He had a fairly significant role in that. Um, I feel like he hasn't really been in a ton else. I think also uh, Lock and Key. Oh, and The Good Wife. Yeah. 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 So some some parts here and there. Um, but I, I really like Bill Heck, so I'm, I'm happy to see him appear in anything. Um so Gene and Eddie are uh, are married. Eddie is a uh, professional thief. Uh, he steals things. And uh, Jean spends a lot of time on her own. Uh, they've been trying to have a kid, but it hasn't worked. And so one day, uh, Eddie comes home to Jean and is carrying a baby with not, not a lot of explanation as to where this child has come from, just the... Uh, the assertion that it is their baby now. And so they have a kid and uh, Jean has absolutely no preparation for how to take care of a child. Um, she has very complicated feelings about having suddenly been given one. Uh, and those things are complicated even further when uh, maybe not even a week later, uh, she is awoken in the middle of the night by Eddie's partners who tell her that she has to leave the house now because something happened. And uh, she is partnered up with Cal, um, Arienze Kane, is that how you pronounce his name? Arienze Kane. I I'm not sure, but yeah, we'll we'll guess for okay. now. Unfortunately, we'll go. Yeah, Arienze Kane, who is is I think really good in this uh, as Cal. Uh, yeah. He is sort of uh, he's he's sort of playing the part of a fixer here. He takes her to a uh, a safe house with, that she's in with the baby for a little while, and she's not supposed to contact anybody. And of course, that doesn't go super well after a while and then she is relocated to a remote cabin that uh used to that belongs to cal's uh family where she meets uh cal's wife terry who's played by uh marcia stephanie blake and the two of them kind of bond over their their shared concern for their missing husbands or their absent husbands uh frankie Faison is also there as cal's dad who uh, kind of teaches gene how to be how to, how to take care of herself, how to, how to take care of herself, uh, from a safety perspective. Um, and a lot of this is, I think there are kind of dual themes here, right. Of, of Jean figuring out how to be a mother and Jean figuring out how to be a, um, kind of a capable woman who can stand on her own because up to this point, she has been kind of stuck at home. A lot of the time she hasn't gotten to leave very much. At one point she says that Eddie wouldn't even let her drive a car. Um, so she's, she's put in this really difficult situation where she has to figure out how to fend for herself um, and also how to take care of a baby that she has no idea how to care for. Um, but has this kind of community that sort of builds around her where she learns how to kind of become her own woman, which is, is pretty awesome. 
Yeah, it's a very, this whole movie is such a fascinating metaphor for the sort of like housewife experience and how it can change and grow and be scary and, you know, how you lose friends along the way, how you feel like a lot of this tension and unexpectedness. And it's all sort of like dressed in a very entertaining, very well-directed and well-staged gangster film, you know, like it's not like a a flashy sort of gangster thing. It's it's something closer to what we saw with like Steve McQueen's Widows, where we sort of see like Jean like learning to become more capable, like you said, in terms of like protecting herself and thinking quickly and solving tough problems. And I like how this movie strikes a good balance between her being capable, but not unrealistically capable. Like she still makes mistakes and we see her learn from those mistakes. And I think the beating heart of this movie is her character development is really fascinating to watch and it's just such a tight script in that way. I think some people have called this kind of slow and I don't know about you two, but I was fully sucked in the entire time. I, I felt like this movie just like breezed past me. Uh, that's probably a bad way to put it because that sounds negative. It just sort of like, I, I didn't feel time pass while watching this, which is uh, definitely not something I can say for a lot of films that I've seen on like a computer screen this year, because that is really hard to do when you're not in like a dark theater where you can really get sucked in. I think seeing this in a the theater probably would have like just fully enveloped me, I think. Uh, but okay, Will Ashton, what, what did you think of I'm Your Woman? Is it your favorite? Is it my jam? Uh, yeah, no, I, I'm definitely... Uh right in line with where you two are so far and that it, it's definitely the type of film that I've been uh, looking for or hoping for because it's like you said like a very deliberately paced uh, character driven genre exercise and that we kind of get to see a perspective that we've seen before but at the same time it's a little bit unique and uh, willing to subvert your traditional expectations I was kind of hoping it would do that a little bit more than um, it ultimately did I think the broad strokes fit are somewhat familiar uh, in a way that I guess I expect this whole thing to be like completely subversive and I'm not quite sure why, but um, I, I do think, you know, I, I've only seen um, Stargirl before this from Julia Hart. I still need to see Fast Color and uh, the film before that. I forget the name off the top of my head, but um, it is apparent that uh, she's really excelling as a director. And um, I do think she has a great working relationship with her husband, uh, Jordan Horowitz, uh, as a producer and screenwriter. Um, and I, I think they, they know what they want to make. Like they, they are very in tune with like the, um, type of films they're making the genre that they want to do. And, uh, I think they produce a lot of pretty clever and dynamic films that, uh, you know, are also fairly entertaining and appealing at the same time. And, uh, I, I do think it's also a credit to, uh, Rachel Brosnan's, uh, lead performance. It's, uh, a lot more, I guess, uh, subtle and subdued than I anticipated, but I think for the better because it allows her character to feel more investing and intriguing as it goes along. And, um, you know, I mean, I don't think it's like necessarily on the same level as Miss Maisel, but um, I do think it's quite solid all around. And uh, yeah, and I'm always happy to see Pittsburgh portrayed in a nice kind of cool 70s vibe, which is always uh, very appealing to me. So uh, this was a win all around, I'd say. Yeah, you were telling me off the air, actually, right, that like one of the reasons Pittsburgh like works so well for the 70s setting is uh, i'll let you explain it actually because yeah um well i mean i don't know this for sure <laughs> um but i i do know that like um when pittsburgh was like kind of transitioning from being like a cool town to kind of more of an industry town that was happening throughout like kind of the 60s and 70s i believe um at least in in 
its process of doing so. I mean, obviously, I think it was happening before and after that, but um, I, I still think it has like the kind of 70s look and vibe throughout the city. Like a lot of the buildings and uh, the areas around it have kept that kind of like 70s aesthetic, at least in my opinion. So um, when I heard it was like going to be a 70s film taking place in Pittsburgh, I was like, yeah, hell yeah, let's do it. Um, because I felt like it would be very fitting. And uh, I, I definitely think the production design in this is quite good uh, in recognizing like a lot of the period designs, but not making them like super flashy or like super um like i guess like apparent except maybe at the beginning like the house is obviously like in the beginning of the film is is kind of a flashy production design but uh outside of that it kind of kept it uh grounded and nimble and i i really appreciate that it actually like makes a lot of sense um in terms of like why we tend to see some of these films take place like shoot in pittsburgh yeah right things like um like perks mm-hmm. of being a wallflower and you know mind hunter which doesn't even take place in pittsburgh but like because it kind of it, like you're saying like it can look a little bit more dated have more of that vibe it it seems like a go-to for directors and it's probably not incredibly expensive to shoot in these places so makes sense yeah i like that you're just like yeah you, i agree your city looks old <laughs> that was a good yeah, yeah hey hey old is cool um what what do you have against things that are old well um Anyway, I'm just I'm just summing up your your feelings in a somewhat dismissive but comedic way. But of course, of course. Yeah, I, I don't have too much to say. I, I, I genuinely just think this is a really captivating caper. Uh, I, I do think, yeah, it's not subversive or anything. There's there's no revelations in here that are going to really blow your mind. I think it's all about the character development. I think, like, for example, there's a twist that is very obvious that to the point where I was like, didn't you already know that? <laughs> like that kind of thing um, that, that happens. But no, it's, it's it all plays so well that I think, uh, despite not being like the flashiest, most like you know, blockbusteriest sort of thing, I think it has all of the tension and spectacle, and to the point where like there's a car chase that had me at the edge of my seat way more than any sort of like standard like physics don't apply kind of car chase you see in countless action movies, and this isn't even really like an action movie like down to the heart of it it is more of a character drama so yeah this is definitely a film that i i easily recommend so i am going to give it an a minus abigail chessie what about you where where do you where do you land on uh, i'm your woman um i'm i'm pretty positive on this i feel like um something that we haven't really gotten to mention a ton is like the amount of face acting in this like there's a lot of really good face acting um especially i think from rachel brosnahan but also from uh from marcia stephanie blake too um but there's yeah, there's all kinds of like these these great subtle moments where like you can you can see like how tired Jean is. And it's like it's very much like new mom tiredness where like you can see the bags under her eyes and you know exactly why she feels that way. Um, and just moments where, uh, yeah, like Terry is interacting with her and just like the exasperation on her face or like just the understanding of something that Jean doesn't yet know. And like there's there's a lot of really cool interactions between the actors in this movie that I think it's, it's a really strong cast. And uh, I think the characters, again, you, you were, you're right that the, the plot does go in some directions that aren't terribly surprising, but I think the character development and the characters are so well, like their, their arcs are so strong that it really almost doesn't matter. So I think that's, that's, that's pretty, that's pretty interesting. Um, I think I would give this maybe an A minus, uh, just because like, yeah, there are some parts of the plot that feel sort of predictable. It does kind of take a little while to get to the main action, but there is like, there's stuff going on throughout that is compelling. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's a little less than perfect, but I think it's still really strong. 
All right, it's two A minuses from us. I won't say what Will's is going to be, but I already know what it is, and he knows that I know. So that's all that matters. Will uh, tell us all about your. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to say it for I'm Your Woman. Okay. Um. Yeah. I mean, I I don't have too much more to say other than what's been said already, which is that, um, I, I really appreciate a movie that's willing to be this deliberate and uh, in tune with itself and, uh, just really flourishing in that way, especially in a kind of grounded and uh, character focus. Uh, style that's just something i really like and uh, this is no exception um the only thing i would say is we've mentioned a lot of supporting cast and i'd have to agree even though this is um rachel brosnan's uh movie i I do think a lot of the supporting cast is what stands out to me uh including marcia marcia uh stephanie blake oh yeah who uh i i don't know if yeah i mean if if we haven't said already i think she's probably like the strongest performance in this movie no defense to um uh rachel brosnan but I do think she is quite good, as well as uh, Frankie Faison, who's always a great uh, character actor. Um, I kind of wish there was a little bit more with him because he has one of my favorite scenes in this movie, uh, like out in the woods area. Yeah. I, I, I was really looking forward to seeing more from him. And I was kind of disappointed that uh, after that scene, he's uh, kind of largely absent from the film. But in any case, um, yeah, I just think it's a really solid, well done film. I agree with Abby that um, I, it, it does feel a little bit predictable and a little bit uh, maybe a little bit too beholden to some of the conventions and cliches of this genre to uh really i think make it a like a grade great film but um i I think this is a commendable strong b plus movie and uh i enjoyed it a good bit all right well i'm your woman can be streamed right now on amazon studios amazon prime video i should say uh it was made by amazon studios and it's not too long it's uh, 120 minutes solid two hours Uh, i think for this genre that's actually pretty decent so uh, i think all three of us can safely say you should give it a watch all right, let's move on to uh, another film. Uh, all three of us saw this as well. So we're, this episode's going to be taking a minute, but that's good because uh, we, we had a lot of, it's December. We're watching lots of movies this month. Uh, Let Them All Talk. This is a new sort of dramedy uh, directed by Steven Soderbergh. It is available to watch right now on HBO Max. And this is another Meryl Streep film. Uh, she stars here with Diane Wiest, the great Candace Bergen, and Lucas Hedges, and Gemma Chan, who has uh, uh, not a breakout role in this, considering she's been in plenty of other things. But certainly, I, I was telling Will this off the air as well. I-, I keep seeing Gemma Chan, and I'm like, why isn't she the leading actor in like things? Uh, it's very strange to me. She's a fantastic actress, but uh, I guess we'll get to that. Uh, the weird thing about this movie, I didn't know this going in, but a lot of the dialogue was apparently improvised by the cast. I kind of get the feeling that's a little exaggerated because while I was watching this, I did get a real feel for like Deborah Eisenberg's dialogue. She did this as screenplay. And uh, I don't know if I'm alone on that, but uh, I guess we'll we'll talk about it now. Oh, and again, or oh, I should say uh, Thomas Newman did the score, which I really appreciated it. Uh, will Ashton, what is the setup for Let Them All Talk? I will I will follow this movie's advice and let you talk. Sure, yeah. Um, so we primarily followed the perspective, even though it's an ensemble uh, dramedy, we primarily followed the perspective of Meryl Streep's character, uh, who, uh, her name is Alice, and Alice Hughes, uh, I believe is her name, if I remember Yeah, I think that's correctly. right. I know it's A-H. Yeah. Um, and she is uh, on the cusp of releasing her next novel. She is a Pulitzer Prize winning writer for a fairly autobiographical novel that she wrote uh, earlier in life, I think about like 20 or 30 years prior. 
And uh, even though it was a, a big hit and, uh, you know, obviously critically acclaimed, she has like some uh, kind of begrudging feelings towards it, like some sense of resentment that that was a novel of hers that became successful. But in any case, um, she is uh, getting ready to give a like sort of like commencement speech uh, or actually to receive a, a reward and then um, eventually give a commencement speech. And so uh, her agent, played by, as you said, uh, Gemma Chang, uh, is uh, Gemma able Chan. to kind of rope. Chan, sorry, uh, Gemma Chan uh, is able to uh, get her onto this uh, cruise line because she hates to fly. And uh, she, uh, in doing so, is able to also convince um, uh, two of her lifelong friends from back in the university, played by Candace Bergen and Diane Weiss, to come along for this trip, as well as her, uh, I believe, nephew, uh, played yeah. by Lucas Hedges. Um, yeah. Tyler. Uh, yeah, Tyler. So uh, in the press that and then eventually uh, it's revealed that Gemma Chan is also joining the cruise to kind of spy and figure out what's going on with the manuscript, because there's obviously a lot of interest, a lot of notice for it. And they're they're hoping at the agency that it's going to be the sequel to this Pulitzer Prize winning novel. But um, they're not quite sure what's happening with it because no one's seen the manuscript. So she's basically spying on them through the help of Tyler to figure out what's going on. And uh, from there, it's just primarily kind of like hangout movie with them all on the uh, cruise, basically hanging out and trying to reconnect, but also kind of airing out some of their grievances along the way. And uh, yeah, I mean, it has kind of like a free flowing style, particularly uh, uh, which is unique for uh, Soderbergh because everything's usually kind of tight and contained. So it's another uh, chance for him to experiment with style and tone. But at the same time, it's very much a Soderbergh type of film. I, I don't think it meanders as much as uh, some people have suggested, but it is kind of playing a little bit loose with the uh, tone and style, which I, I think might grate some people. But for me, I had a good time with this. I, I definitely think it's a credit to the uh, cast to definitely play off each other well. And I think um, even though it does uh, rely on them improvising a lot of the dialogue, which I think kind of goes back and forth in terms of its success, uh, I, I do think there is a naturalness to it and a uh, kind of uh, enjoyable kind of uh, free flow to it, like I was saying, that uh, keeps it endearing and enjoyable throughout. And uh, I also really enjoy this one a little bit more than The Prom, though I do think it's fairly a minor Soderbergh in the scheme of things, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. I'm going to be the weird one and say I, I did not like this as much um, as The Prom. I know it's probably blasphemy. I, I think what for me... The things I really like about this is I do like the style, like the way they shot on the cruise ship is really cool because like they use like you can tell they're using like natural light and it's very like gorilla type uh, filmmaking, which Soderbergh loves to do. He loves to be experimental like that. Uh, it's not shot on an iPhone though, as far as I can tell. But I think for me, like the th- the character dynamics are way more interesting outside of the main character, in my opinion. I, I just did not really enjoy this Meryl Streep performance or nor did I feel like I got much out of it. I feel like the myth around her character is more interesting than her in practice. Maybe that's the point, but I found myself way more captivated by the other character relationships. I think when Diane Weist and Candace Bergen are like talking and they're just, even when they're discussing Alice, right, which is mainly what they talk about, I felt way more invested. I felt way more like, nervous about what was going to happen next and like that burning tension around the past it's like a greedy reboot of mamma mia in some ways uh, but then also lucas hedges and Gemma chan which i didn't see this coming have this like very kind of fascinating like week of getting to know each other that kind of goes down a path you can see coming but all the same it it definitely doesn't lose any of that relatability and some of that like 
I don't know, there was a flavor to their dynamic and a what are what's everybody's motivations really here that I thought was way more interesting than Meryl Streep. And eventually the movie kind of contextualizes what's going on with Streep uh, in this that kind of like brings light to what, you know, the story actually is. And I think that it undermines the entire movie in a lot of ways. And I, I did not care for it. So yeah, by the end of this, I was like, you know, yeah, it's a hangout movie. I liked hanging out with most of these characters. Not a bad film, obviously, but I, I can't say that it it really clicked with me on the right level. Um, what about you, Abby? I, I actually really enjoyed this, and uh, I I do kind of agree that the the way that the movie goes, like right at the end, um, makes me wonder. And I did kind of wonder throughout this that, like, I mean, Soderbergh is directing this, and he's obviously got a, a really strong directorial hand. Um, and he's directing a script that is not his and isn't really by somebody that he collaborates with a lot. And it did make me wonder about like the difference between the strength of the script that they were working from and how much of that actually translated to what we saw on screen. I wonder if perhaps that that kind of turn at the end and the recontextualization of uh, of Meryl Streep's character isn't maybe part of that. Um, it, it did kind of feel to me like maybe it was something that just didn't quite make the jump um, in in the way that it should have, or maybe something that was left over from a different draft of a script. But um, I do think that the main action, the stuff that's on the cruise ship and the way that the characters interact with each other, I think is great. Um, I actually like Streep's character um, and I like her performance for the most part too. I I tend to enjoy Streep when she's being kind of um, comically prickly and distant. That's, that's maybe my favorite, my favorite version of her. And I think she does that very well here. Um, and yeah, it's it, she's she's kind of a hard person to get to know. Um, she's kind of pompous and really into herself, and I feel like that is addressed and played within the movie in some some stuff that's in in some ways that are really entertaining. Um, but yeah, I I really like the dynamic between the different characters. I think Candace Bergen basically steals the entire movie. She's amazing, and I think her character is really really funny and developed in a way that I think does feel more improvisational. I feel like maybe she's given. Uh, given a framework and some motivations to go with and you just kind of see the choices that she's making as an actor to kind of play that up throughout and the way that she reacts to like her her manager when she uh, before she goes on the cruise when she's working in a uh, a lingerie store in in a, a lingerie section in a department store in a mall um it just like all of these little things that just really communicate volumes about her character um yeah i think and also just the fact that it is a movie like a light fun entertaining film that focuses primarily on the relationships between three women um like in their in their 60s i think is not something that you see that often and not something that you see addressed in a way that is this light and enjoyable and kind of widely accessible so that was something that i really appreciated too um yeah there's there's a lot that i enjoyed about this movie i feel like it doesn't necessarily feel mega consequential, but like, that's okay. Like we're in the middle of serious movie season right now. And it was really nice to be able to like sit down and for two hours, just kind of lightly enjoy something that I thought was humorous and fairly well-made and well-acted. All right. Well, Ashen, uh, final thoughts and uh, what's your grade for let them all talk. Yeah, I guess I'm a lot closer to Abby on this one than you, John, in that, um, yeah, I, I, I do really like Soderbergh's style. I, I think he makes the type of films that everything is so methodical and thought out, but there is kind of like a uh, 
kind of experimental vibe where he's just kind of like playing up. It's like, let's see what happens. Like, what, what if we did this? What if we did that? And I think he balances that out pretty well here. Like, you know, his success rate kind of varies. Um, I wasn't a big fan of The Laundromat, for instance, his last film. But um, even though, I, like I said before, I think this is a minor work for him. I do think it is strong. I think it's interesting, though, that this is coming out so close to Mank, which is uh, obviously the Dave Fincher film. And uh, Soderbergh has a close friendship with uh, David Fincher. And I think it's interesting that both those films are about like obsessive writers and uh, like their kind of writing process and coming to terms with like the uh, the last twilight years of their lives. And with um, this film, it's pretty clear that he's uh, acknowledging kind of the futility of obsessionism and the idea of like, you know, like it, it's uh, almost kind of frivolous to be so caught up in the uh, particulars of something that you're doing for art which is an interesting perspective from Soderbergh, given that he's the type of guy who will like direct edit uh, the DP, like the first assistant, like he's like his own weird way, also very obsessive. And I feel like he's kind of like the right and wrong person to tell that type of story. But um, at the end of the day, I do have to agree with Abby in that. Like, I think this is just a, a basically a hangout movie, kind of like book club two, basically where um, we get to see a lot of uh, great actresses in their seventies hanging out and getting kind of meaty roles. They don't often get as much with the exception of Meryl Streep. Obviously she gets to do a lot of good things a lot of the time, but um, I do agree. Like, I, I feel like post iron lady, a lot of the performances we've seen from uh, Meryl Streep have been kind of the more like broader kind of like more theatrical performances from her side of the things. And for me, those are, I just don't really like that side of Meryl Streep as much as the kind of more like downbeat and kind of more like uh, hard to read type characters that she she sometimes plays or kind of more character driven work that uh, I tend to enjoy a lot more. And I think this is a good example of that, even though, like I said, I did like her performance in the prom well enough. I, I think this is a stronger showcase for her as an actress. And uh, I, I think he, she does work well with Soderbergh. I think she kind of keeps uh he helps her kind of stay level and grounded in a way that I think showcase her best talents, which is also, I think, apparent in uh, the laundromat, which I think has both one of her best and one of her worst performances uh, at the same time, from what I can recall. But um, yeah, I mean, I think the cast all around is good. It's I see a movie with Lucas Hedges where he's not uh, inconsolable and weeping at one point, <laughs> which is, uh, you know, nice. It's a yeah, nice yeah. change of pace from Charlie him. Plummer is next. Uh, yeah. Uh, and I have to agree with you, uh, Gemma Chan is, I think, a uh, strong actress. And I, I almost kind of wish she had a bigger part in the uh, second half, though I understand um, why she didn't. But um, I also like, um, we didn't mention him, but there's another character, kind of like a James Patterson type guy. Oh, yeah. um, I think his name's Calvin uh, Krantz, if I recall correctly. He does have a huge role, but that's actually like uh, another director. I, I don't think he's actually an actor in this but i thought he did a nice job i, I kind of wanted to see more of him because i found his perspective to be really intriguing in the scheme of things especially because um you know how how much he counterbalances against meryl streep as being like the type of guy is just like you know it's done time to do the next thing kind of uh uh type of author which i think is i i would like to see more kind of back and forth between that type of character and meryl streep to kind of dive into the themes because i do agree with you john that um the end kind of felt a little underwhelming for me once they they established what the movie is ultimately about it's like oh, okay fine like I, I get like what he's going for but I, I and i like that you know he likes to, like kind of pull the rug under people and kind of like not make a big deal of those uh um, revelations but um yeah at the same time it didn't it didn't hit uh quite as hard as i think it was supposed to but at the same time um i like the movie overall I, I think it's a good time and i think it's you know a nice solid little effort from soderbergh and uh i'd give it I'll say a high B minus just because I enjoyed the ride, but I don't think it's perfect by any means. All right. 
I am a, a low B minus, and yeah, I don't, I don't think it's a bad movie by any means. Uh, yeah, like I said before, I just, I don't know, something about the presentation of it just didn't quite click with me in the way that I wanted. Um, but yeah, overall, I'm more positive than not. I just sort of, I just see the Meryl Streep character as a little bit too distant almost. And uh, yeah, I, I just, this movie just didn't really resonate with me and that ending really just capped me from like loving it um, or even liking it much. But yeah, I'm glad you two are getting a lot out of it. So yeah, low B minus for me and uh, we'll finish out with you, Abby. Yeah, I think I'm I'm probably the most positive of uh, of the three of us. Um, I, I'm I'm a B plus on this and it may just be because of when it hit me. Um, like I was really in the mood to watch something that was kind of light and enjoyable and this really ticked that box for me. Um, but yeah, I think it's a it's a unique uh, perspective and kind of a unique representation of just older women kind of trying to reconcile some things in their lives. Like it's a story like that, that is funny and not something that is like massively dramatic, which is I think what these stories, when we do get them tend to be. Um, so it's, I, I, I really appreciated that. I felt like it gives these, uh, these actresses, uh, really a, a very enjoyable space to create characters that feel very appropriate to their uh to their personas to their on-screen personas and really kind of give them space to bounce around and uh and work with each other and create something that really felt like a lived-in true um true friendship for for all three of them it really feels genuine to to what that experience might be um and yeah i think lucas hedges puts in a nice performance and again it is nice to see him in something where he's not you know in in dire straits um where he's just kind of a normal normal dude getting to be a normal dude and uh kind of makes the uh like millennial gen z cusp mistakes that i think a lot of us around that same age probably would have as well um so yeah i think it's just it's an enjoyable space to hang out with these characters it ends on kind of an odd note but like i still i still get it i feel like it's not enough to really dissuade me from generally really enjoying the movie so yeah a, a b plus from me all right, Abby, I'm glad since you were in the mood for something light and casual, I'm really glad you watched this instead of anything for Jackson. Um, because, wow. Uh, although I will say I did I did watch that this past week and I do recommend it. Uh, it is a very heavy horror film. Um, and so if you're not in the mood for something like that, uh, Let Them All Talk is probably a much safer bet. Uh, but all right, Let Them All Talk, like we said before, is now available on HBO. Max, you can stream it right this minute. And I don't know if it'll get any awards conversation. I haven't really heard any buzz for this one, but uh, I guess I wouldn't be that surprised if like Streep got a nomination or Candace Bergen, you know, but well, I guess we'll find out pretty soon. All right. Uh, this is the last film that all three of us have seen. And then we're going to wrap up with a couple of uh, uh, mini reviews. But Wolf Walkers, uh, this is the latest cartoon saloon. It's kind of like the third entry in their unofficial trilogy between Secret of the Kells and Song of the Sea. And now this, uh, they released films like every few years. Uh, this is now streaming on Apple TV Plus, and it is a hand-drawn animated film. It's a fantasy adventure. It was directed by Tom Moore and Ross Stewart, and uh, who, of course, uh, Tom Moore um, is uh, he, he was a director of uh, the first two films as well, Secret of Kells and Song of the Sea. I think he co-directed uh, Song of the Sea with someone else. 
Uh, that said, uh, this film has been a long time coming. A lot of people have been really anticipating it. This one, Will, you talked about it uh, because you saw it at the Toronto International Film Festival, so you've already shared your thoughts. And a lot of people are saying this is the best animated film of the year. So very interesting. Let's see what we think, though. Abby Olchesi, uh, how, how would you describe the uh, the story of Wolfwalkers to someone who may be interested? Yeah. Uh, so Wolfwalkers, uh, I think all of the Cartoon Saloon films take place in Ireland in some way, right? I haven't seen Song of the Sea. Yeah, but... Kilkenny. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, this is like like those other films, this takes place in Ireland in, in Kilkenny and uh, follows uh, a, a girl uh, named Robin Goodfellow and her dad, Bill, who have just arrived in uh, Kilkenny from England. Um, Bill is a, a wolf hunter and he has been hired to get rid of the wolves that are outside of, uh, of the city walls to make it safe for farming and further development, basically. Um, and uh, Robin kind of hero worships her dad and wants to be a, uh, a wolf hunter herself, although her dad won't let her because he wants her to stay safe. And also because she's a girl and he wants her to grow up to be, you know, a, all of the things that you would expect from a girl in that period of time. Um, and also because the, uh, the Lord protector of the town, who's played by Simon McBurney, um, wants all children to stay within the walls. He's, he's extremely strict and, uh, pretty hard on, on Bill, who's played by Sean Bean. Um, so at some point, Robin follows her dad into the woods and uh, befriends a young girl named Maeve, who is a wolf walker, which means that she can um, kind of switch between wolf form and girl form. She's a girl when she is awake and when she is asleep, she can be a uh, she can transform her spirit can tr- transform into a wolf. Um, and her mom is is the same way. Uh, I think her name is Maul. Uh, but Maul has been missing for a number of days and Maeve can't figure out where she is. And that's, that's causing some, some issues. Um, so Robin decides that she's going to help Maeve find her mom and, uh, that their, their friendship kind of culminates in some interesting, uh, some, some interesting developments. One of which is that Robin herself becomes a wolf walker and because her dad is a wolf hunter, that causes some conflict. So there's, there's a conflict between being, being friends with someone who is considered an enemy and also, uh, inhabiting characteristics of that, that, uh, community herself and trying to figure out how she can, how she can kind of reconcile those two things and help everybody to live in peace. All right. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. Uh, you know, the first thing I thought of when I was watching this was like, first of all, the animation here is incredible. Like, definitely Cartoon Saloon's best, you, as you would expect. You know, they just are continuing to grow and grow. And, like, the things that they do with hand-drawn animation is, like, truly stunning work. Uh, that said, I know some people are kind of saying, like, this is the, the best animation ever seen hand-drawn. And I'm, I think Klaus, for me, is still, like, at the upper echelon of that. And this is pretty high up as well. But I, I have to be the kind of naysayer a little bit with Wolf Walkers in the sense that on the one hand, this story is a lot more like satisfying in a, a sort of mainstream way than the previous two cartoon saloon films. I think those ones are a little hard to sink your teeth into. Um, even something like Breadwinner too. I just think that those ones are very like 
there's a lot of dark elements. Um, they can be really slow. And this one is like quick. It's very simple. Like every, like kids can more like more kids can watch this than I think a lot of kids would be really bored with the other ones. But what I think it loses here, it's like a, be careful what you wish for. Maybe if you were somebody who wished Song of the Sea had more mainstream appeal, I don't know if anybody was asking that, but if you were wishing that it was a more like uh, accessible film, I guess. It, it's not as artistically daring than I think those films. I think that the the basic message of this, it's like dances with wolves, you know, it's it's, it's a lot of like, okay, we know what's going to happen. We know that this character is going to have a misunderstanding and they need to get along. And this villain is obviously the villain because he's so villainous. And I don't know, th- th- I feel like this just didn't have like really raw artistic energy that, I uh, could have really propelled it to being something like a masterpiece, uh, but I do really en- enjoy it. Like I, I enjoyed watching it. I would watch it with kids. I think kids will like it. Uh, but yeah, I, I can't say that it's like cartoons balloons strongest, which is not great because I don't think those films are particularly strong when it comes to story either. And I, I just don't understand like what would cartoons balloon have to do to really nail this like recipe and i just don't think they've quite done it yet and wolf walkers comes close in some ways but i think fall fails in others uh, particularly with the robin character who i think is kind of grating for the most part uh but will you know i i think you have a slightly different opinion i mean i, I think like i was kind of complaining to you about the robin character and you were defending her honor uh and i think she's even voiced by someone named uh, honor nifsi but uh, but yeah, what what is your what is your take on Wolfwalkers uh, after you've had some time to process it a bit? And do you have any reaction to what Abby and I think? Yeah, I mean, I guess um, by and large, I guess I'm not too far off from where you are, John, um, in that. Like, I, I think it's hard to deny the beauty and the glamour and the uh, just the the hard work that has gone into making such gorgeous and vivid hand drawn animation, especially at a time now where we see so many computer drawn animated films, which are not bad by design like i think you know there's a lot of really great animated films made through computers but they're just an, an old-fashioned storybook quality to hand-drawn animation that you know it, it's just, it's just timeless and it's it's just something that it is becoming a rarity and you know it's very easy to champion uh, a film like this that comes along every now and then and continues that tradition um and with that said though i i have to agree with you john in that like i, I think the story itself in trying to echo that storybook quality i think it is maybe a little bit too beholden to uh, conventions and cliches that we've seen from this type of genre to the point where I just don't think it fully stands out on its own. It does kind of feel like uh, Cartoon Saloon trying to do a Disney movie, which is fine. Like, I, I, I respect that. And I, I think that they're doing it well here, but I, I don't think it quite has its own identity in a way that... Uh, even something like uh, um, Secret of Kells or A Song of the Sea stands out a little bit more to me upon reflection. I think this just is a really good, solid family movie that a lot of families are going to enjoy because it's accessible, especially American audiences. I think this is probably the most accessible of the films I've seen from them. But um, at the same time, like I, I don't think it's like a like masterpiece or a tour de force from the company, but I think it is a very strong and, and very good film as far as what it's trying to do. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I'm quite in love with it the way that some people are, but I can very easily see why it's a film that uh, critics and audiences are willing and, and ready to champion. So I can see both sides. Yeah. Like I expect soul to win best animated film um, based on what I've heard of that film so far. And Pixar just tends to win. Um, but 
you know, if Wolfwalkers, Wolfwalkers will absolutely get a nomination along with Onward, but, and if, let's not forget Trolls World Tour, but if Wolfwalkers won, I could kind of see it. I could see the Academy really gravitating to this. I just don't see it beating a, like an original Pete Doctor Pixar movie, honestly, unless something changes with critics in the next few weeks. I think it'll just depend on Apple. If they put enough uh, firepower behind making this movie like available to audience or Academy members, I mean, and, and making it uh, stand out on par with uh, Pixar, I, I could see that. But I think it's the balls in their court in that regard. So it's a long shot. But all right, let's get into our final thoughts. Um, Abby, you know, we've been kind of negative on it so far. Uh, how do you how do you feel, though, about this one? Um, and I guess, yeah, weigh in on the awards chances, if you have any thoughts on that. For sure. Um, I'm, I think, a little more positive on it than than you guys, maybe. Uh, I know it's the, the story kind of goes in some directions that aren't terribly surprising. I really like Robin as a character. Um, I appreciate movies about um, like strong young girls who kind of defy convention and do their own thing and develop into interesting characters that doesn't necessarily end with them having to get a boyfriend or a husband. Um, and this is definitely a movie that, that does that well. Um, I think the relationship between her and Maeve is really sweet. Uh, I think the animation is really gorgeous. There's just all kinds of really interesting hand-drawn stuff that, um, I, I feel like we've become a little too used to, um, like the Disney style of animation or, um, maybe other like larger studio, animation styles where we expect it to look a certain way. And I feel like Cartoon Saloon has always done a really good job of making it look like something with a distinct artistic vision, which is is increasingly, I think, hard to find in, in animation. So I feel like those are both really admirable qualities that this movie possesses. Um, and I think uh, it's, it's not necessarily dealing with high-minded concepts the way a movie like Soul is, um, which... I mean, I, I don't want to spoil too much. I have already seen it for like awards purposes. Um, and, and I mean, it's, it's a lot of what you would expect from Pete doctor, uh, in like the best way in terms of like high concept and interesting visualization of that concept. Um, this is a little more straightforward, but I, I feel like it's really important to, uh, to pay attention and champion, uh, independently produced, uh, animation, when it comes along because there's not really a lot of that happening. And there's, I mean, a lot of artistry going on behind it, which is part of the reason it takes so long to create. Um, and I think it's really resulted in a really nice piece of art that I think deserves serious consideration. So, uh, I think I would give it probably an A minus. Um, I think it's, I think it's really strong, maybe slightly less than just an utter total masterpiece, but a really strong and I think outstanding piece of art. All right. Yeah, we don't disagree on too much for sure. Um, I'm I'm just a solid B, uh, and I I just think that like the things that I like don't overshadow the things that I think are missed opportunities. But yeah, this thing is definitely really solid, and I think I, I am not surprised at all that it is like really clicking with other people. And yeah, very curious to see Soul myself because uh, I don't know. For all I know, I could Onward could be the animated film that I think is the best of 2020, which would be kind of wild considering its competition uh that said yeah i you know i'll, I'll say that like I, when it comes to like robin and mave i have to agree we didn't really talk about that much but their, their relationship is pretty sweet i think that i like robin a lot more when it's her and mave and like it's feeling like she's sort of out there kind of like you said doing her own thing i think the scenes where i got really frustrated with that character are with her dad who's voiced by sean bean 
and it's just i don't know there, there's just something very like grating about the way they can't communicate that it, it, it just was like this story issue of like if you could just say one thing like the story would change completely and i don't know i some of that stuff kind of let me down and how it was like presented and um yeah uh, I thought Robin at times was like very strong and very fun to watch, but then other times she was like very weepy and very like complaining. And I don't know, I that character just didn't quite work for me in the same way um, all the way through. Uh, but yeah, I'm a solid B. And Will Ashton, tell us all about your go. Well, uh, don't hold back your feelings on this like ten year old girl, John. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I didn't really have the same issues that you had with Robin. I thought she was a pretty well fleshed out character, even though she's your kind of typical child protagonist in this type of vein. Um, I thought she was a fairly believable and, and likable young kid character. Um, so I didn't have any issues like that. But um, I do agree that I, I think maybe if it was just like a little bit more like if it stood out a little bit more in terms of story and, and the genre it's telling, I think I would have been right there and, and with an A on it. For me, though, it's a pretty... Uh, light but firm uh, B plus. I, I, I do think it works. I, I think what it's trying to do it does very well. And obviously the animation makes it such a uh, beautiful looking film to look at. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's not one that's like stuck with me too much since I've seen it uh, compared to, I guess, some of the other critics who have uh, seen it and fallen head over heels for it. But um, yeah, I mean, it's very easy to see why this is a crowd pleaser and why it's become uh, a pretty well regarded and acclaimed film. And I could definitely see it making quite an impression, possibly giving uh, Pixar run for its money at at the best animation uh, movie Oscar race, but uh, at the time, yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I haven't seen Soul, so I don't quite know how I can compare it, but um, I do think there, I just ultimately wish there was something about it that made me uh, just kind of fall over and just like be in love with it the way that some people are. But as it is, I think it's a nice, solid little movie, and and I'm glad I checked it out. All right, well, you can check it out right now. Uh, you can watch it on Apple TV Plus. And uh, it's only 103 minutes, about an hour and 43 minutes for you to check out. So not very long. And I think for most people, it'll be definitely worth their time. All right. So we are way over time. Speaking of which, so uh, these last two films are for sure mini reviews. Uh, I'm the only one who saw Wander Darkly, which is a new film from Tara Miel, who wrote and directed it. Um, I'm not familiar with her other work. I, I don't know if this is actually her first film, actually. Um, but I do know that this is a, a screenplay that she has been wanting to uh, put together for quite a while. Uh, so Wander Darkly, it stars Diego Luna and Sienna Miller as this couple. And we kind of meet them sort of like in a very t like a rough patch of their relationship they're not married but they've been together for a while and they just had a baby and they're having a lot of fights they're having a lot of relationship problems and then early on in the film there is sort of an unexpected tragedy that happens and for reasons that are very mysterious these two characters start wandering their memories like in an ethereal way and so the film becomes this like time bending sort of like tree of life kind of mosaic of them trying to process their relationship, their childhoods, um, why they wanted to be together, why they decided to have kids. It's, it's a fascinating mashup of several films. Like you'll think of films like Arrival, A Ghost Story, uh, like I said, Tree of Life. It's kind of got like a Terrence Malick-esque score. Uh, the music is by Alex Weston. And 
there are elements of it that I think are really strong. Like there are times when this movie like really had me like gripped where I was really like, I was falling in love with these characters, even though I really disliked them in the beginning, which is what you want. You know, like you start off sort of being like, why would these characters even be together? But then you spend time with them and you sort of see, oh, okay, so this is the real nature of their dynamic. Here is where things went wrong. I do think it's a, I, I can tell that Tara Miel has like relationships on her mind and the unique social dynamics of like why people get together, why love is like so strong at one point, but then it falls apart later and how people can sort of salvage that and how they can like find redemption in that. There are a few sort of like narrative quirks here that threw me off. Um, and I think like the ending of it, it, it really just doesn't land the plane here. But I think for the experience, it's so unique. And I, you can't say that a lot about films that are sort of like in this vein, if you kind of get the sense from the trailer. But it's a very unique concept. And I think it's a very strong premise. And for the most part, it, it really does like come together. So I'm a very high B. I think if the ending was a little stronger, it's for sure B plus. Definitely worth people's time if you love to watch a lot of films. And if you're into these sort of like, um, I don't want to make it sound more esoteric and more like vague and ambiguous than it really is. It is pretty straightforward. Like you can follow along with the film. It's not like Tree of Life where you're like, why are there dinosaurs? What the heck? It's more of like if that was made by a more conventional studio filmmaker. And I don't mean that as like a, a slight whatsoever, Tara Miel. I just think that she has a very like strong hand at making this stuff, like making things that are confusing make sense which it fascinates me a lot in terms of like her career going forward. Again, I, I'm not sure if she's made other films. I don't know about this filmmaker. I don't know much about this filmmaker, but this is a really strong effort. If it's her first film, I'm very, very impressed. Uh, I, I think it's not clicking with everybody. It's got like, a, I think, a 70% on Rotten Tomatoes. And uh, I think for some people, like the riskiness of this film doesn't pay off. For me, it mostly did. So I, I'm a very strong B, almost a B plus. Uh, I've been thinking about this one off and on over the last week. I, I can't say that it's really stuck with me. Like I haven't really like gone back and, you know, like woken up in the middle of the night and been like wonder darkly, you know, that hasn't happened like it has with other films that I've seen this week. Uh, but that is the nature of December. We're cramming so many films in. It's kind of hard to really let some of them sit with us. But Abby will, I hope, you know, I wouldn't say it's a huge priority. I wouldn't say drop everything for this one. But if you do get a chance to see it, uh, especially like in a, in a nice context, a, a way like a good mood, uh, then I think this one sh could be worth your time. There's another movie, though, I forgot that I definitely compared this to very quickly. And that is 2018's Life Itself, which I think Tara Miel wrote the screenplay for this film around the time that film came out. I'm not accusing her of anything here, but I have a feeling she, I'm just saying I got the feeling that she took some notes and was like, I could do this way better. Um, that said, Wander Darkly, it is, uh, I think, out as of uh, yesterday or two days ago, December 11th. Uh, I think it's available in uh, limited release and or video on demand. I'm actually not 100% sure, but this is coming from Lionsgate. I hope people uh, who are curious check it out for sure. All right, last film of the week, Songbird. Will, you saw this. Yeah. Uh, this is a sci-fi thriller. Um, I think it's based on COVID, uh, or like it's a story about COVID. What's going on with this movie, Will? 
Oh yeah, it's not at all subtle about it. Um, yeah, so this is a um, the latest Michael Bay production. He didn't direct it, but he did produce it. Um, and uh, from what I can tell, because it was announced, I believe in May or maybe April, uh, this is a project that kind of came together rather hastily, uh, starting in March uh, when everything was shutting down due to the COVID nineteen pandemic. Uh, I guess the screenwriters here, who are Adam Manson, who co wrote the film. Uh, with uh, Simon Boyles, they they came up with this idea of like uh, like what where could the uh, COVID virus go and like say uh, I believe I I think this is a 2024, so like in about three years from now or I guess actually four years from now, if if things weren't uh, improving but rather accelerating to the point where COVID 19 has become COVID 23 and uh, it has become almost untenable for anyone who isn't immune who are called munis in this. Uh, and basically it's an ensemble film kind of in the vein of like the purge films, even though Michael, I forget if Michael Bay produced those or not, but, um, it's kind of like in that same vein where it's like a post-popolitic version of the U S where like, uh, they're like the, uh, immune people who are like basically carrying out packages and doing different things like that. Um, that people who are not immune can do or can't do. But, um, we also follow like a collection of different, uh, characters. One's played by Craig Robinson others played by. Demi Moore, another is played by Bradley Whitford. Um, one of the main ones played by Sophia Carlson. And then we also have uh, Paul Walter Hauser, as well as Pierre Shoremore in the villainous role. And uh, it's a good cast. I mean, you, you, you can't really deny the talent in front of the camera, but the story itself ultimately just feels fairly opportunistic and uh, kind of uh, morally and uh, budgetly cheap as far as uh, basically trying to capitalize on something that's been a part of our lives throughout the majority of this year. And uh, that's not to say that's a terrible film or that like it's poorly done. I think given the limitations that they clearly had to do throughout the production, uh, you know, including primarily mostly the actors acting by themselves and kind of just like acting in front of screens and stuff in order to uh, keep them safe, uh, even though I have heard and I don't know this for sure. But I remember hearing like reports that the production of the film, like the crew and stuff, were maybe a little lax with the uh, covid production uh, regulations. But I don't know that for sure. So don't. Uh, take that with a grain of salt. But in any case, the movie itself uh, is one of several films that claims to be the first movie to be made during COVID, like Borat 2 and Host and uh, the uh, Zendaya one that's coming out next year. And uh, as far as just being a film about COVID and very direct and uh, very obvious and uh, not very uh, subdued way, it's a fairly clunky and uh, in some ways just sort of mediocre movie in that it doesn't really reckon with what's going on it just kind of feels like i said like a chance to uh capitalize on something that's been going on throughout the year and in that sense it's kind of hard to look at as an artistic endeavor but rather something to uh capitalize on this time which is a a pretty cynical way of looking at a movie and unfortunately the movie itself isn't much better to really look at beyond that but at the same time i, I wasn't bored watching it. it's only 84 minutes long and uh, it, it doesn't really waste its time, you know, it does kind of pad out the story as much as it can. But uh, ultimately, the characters are pretty lethal. Uh, we barely really get to know supporting characters beyond a few tangents. And uh, ultimately, I just don't really think it's worthy of the talents of the people involved in front of the camera. And uh, it's not one I'm thinking I'm going to be thinking about much afterwards, although there is uh, some inspired visuals and uh, different imagery throughout that I will give a credit for from a production and uh, production design standpoint. But um, by and large, this is a fairly middle of the road C type film. Like it's not horrible what's doing it. I definitely had a lot of fun watching Pierre Shoremore uh, playing a villain role, and he seems to be having a lot of fun with this part. But 
by and large, like I said, the, the, the whatever charms they have are fairly fleeting. And uh, it's not one that I think is really uh, what we need right now, especially in relation to how we're going to be dealing with the uh, COVID pandemic moving forward. So nothing very special, but it is one of the bigger releases of the year. So I made a point to check it out. And uh, I don't know if any other people will or if this is going to be one that's forgotten uh, as time goes by. But that wouldn't be too bad if that's the case. Yeah, it's available on premium video on demand. So you have to pay a lot to watch it. So I don't think a ton of people are going to uh, pay to see this one anytime soon, uh, especially since the reviews have been so negative. But yeah, I guess... I, I would say the business decision here of like, okay, who who is one of the first filmmakers who really could like, you know, produce something that would capture the COVID pandemic in a way that is subtle and just really like important. And yeah, Michael Bay, is that who we, you know, maybe, yeah, um, that's Songbird. All right. Well, thank you as always for listening. We're way over time, but we do want to give a couple minutes here just to plug anything, Abby, Will, that you have going on this week. Abby, is there anything you just want to give a shout out before we finish things out? Uh, for sure. I have a full review of The Prom up at uh, Crooked Marquee currently, if you want to read more of my thoughts on that. And uh, is the headline, Why John is Right About The Prom? Sure, if that's what you want. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I already edited it. Oh, yeah. Um, and also, I have a, a the piece that I mentioned, I think, from last week about uh, movies to kind of refresh you for the new year uh, is up at the pitch currently, if that is a thing that you were interested in doing after Christmas around New Year's and setting up a uh, kind of movie marathon for yourself there. Sounds good. Uh, Will Ashton, what about you? Uh, nothing comes to mind, unfortunately. I, I don't think I have anything to really plug, but uh, I guess I'll second Abby's <laughs> thing since nice. I don't have anything of my own. So check that out. Camaraderie. Love it. Uh, for me, um, I have a Coleman Domingo interview coming up this week. Uh, it's going to be out on the Cinemaholics main feed and the Cinemaholics website uh, later this week. I think we're going to run it on Wednesday, but I got to talk to Coleman Domingo from Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Uh, it was a wonderful conversation just a true honor to speak with him just like what a like class like act like human being like one of, one of my favorite interviews I, I think like one of my favorites since maybe like richard kind where i just felt like i was really talking and having like a real conversation with somebody so uh that was a blast and uh you can listen to that uh on right here on the cinemaholics feed but we'll also transcribe it on cinemaholics.com so you can read it if you prefer but that'll do it for us this week. Crazy long episode, but we did have a ton to get to. I'm glad we did. Uh, we'll see you all next week for, I think, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom is going to be our next review. But until then, from the Internet California, I'm John Negroni. From the Internet Pennsylvania, I'm Washington. From the Internet Kansas City, I'm Abby Olchesi. See you next time. <laughs>